Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am welcoming back a guest, Dr. Mahadeo Sukai. Dr. Sukai, welcome again to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sean. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, our first conversation was, was certainly very interesting. So, anybody who's listening to this, I would encourage them to check that. Uh, conversation out. Um, they can find the, the Broad Eye podcast on any podcast platform or uh, through broadeye.org. And that one was published, I believe it was October 15th. So um, I would certainly refer people to that uh, episode. Um, but I'd like to dive into some things that we didn't get to there or just maybe uh, superficially touched on. So I was hoping to start with some of your your future projects. I mean, we talked a lot about, about your, your background and, and what you're doing now, but um, what are you working on or what do you have lined up, you know, in the months or, or years ahead, uh, whether it's through your team or, you know, collaborations. Um, and then maybe just in general, what, what do you see as future projects that are you're excited about? Well, I, I think it's a great question, Sean. And, and, and I, I will draw sort of a distinction between um, between the future projects and current work that I'm doing as part of my, my research and also the kinds of things that, that, that get me excited and I'm really interested in. Um, and, and on the side is, is a horrible term, um, but, but I, I think the way I would put it over is, is things that, that I'm excited about and, and interested in, in in the context of like we talked about, I think a little bit the last time, kind of that that um, that avocation of mine with respect to understanding accessibility in the context of, of science education and, and STEM training and and um, and the future of the STEM workforce, um, particularly particularly the, the the scientific side of the STEM workforce, not not merely the the hey we have a STEM company. Let's talk about inclusion in the context of HR and IT, but also let's talk about inclusion in the context of a field scientist or a bench scientist or, or you know, scientific associate, scientific leader. So, so, so I'm going to draw a distinction between those two things and, and tell you kind of what's going on in, in, um, in my world and in both those spaces um, in sort of a high-level nutshell. So, so through the research program at CNIB, we've got a very large project right now on uh, inclusive workplaces. Um, that's funded by Accessibility Standards Canada, um, and uh, and so so we've got a piece of work on uh, inclusive workplaces that um, that involves things like understanding accessibility and inclusion throughout this thing that we call the employment life cycle. And and what I mean by that is is when we talk about um, when we talk about accessibility, um, we often talk about accessibility um, in the workplace focused on somebody getting a job. Um, getting a job is great. Keeping a job is hard. Um, and so we also need to talk about accessibility in the context of keeping a job, not just getting a job. And, and so, so, so that's, that's the concept of the employment life cycle. And, and that's, um, that's one of the things that the research is, is kind of zeroed in on. Um, and, and the tactic that we're taking is, is one that says, um, you know, the, the employment system as it's set up is, um, is defined a certain way. And, and uh, we're asking a question that, that, I don't know that people have necessarily asked before, which is, is this the right way? Um, is this the only way that employment can actually be established? And so we're, we're kind of looking for things um, 
kind of in between and, and outside kind of the common assumptions about employment for persons with disabilities in the workforce. Um, there's another piece that I'm actually not uh, allowed to talk about as yet. Actually, a couple of other pieces that I'm not allowed to talk about as yet because they're embargoed. So, so that might be for a part three down the road. Um, but there's also this thing called COVID-19 that's going on, that, that's, that's still going on. Um, that has that has led to significant impact uh, on the lives of uh, people with disabilities, not just in Canada but around the world. Uh, and and that impact has been on access to healthcare. It's been on access to social services. It's been it's been on um, education. It's been on employment. It's been on uh, job rates and and the kinds of jobs that people have and and the kinds of schooling that people have experienced and so on and so um, so we've got we've got a piece of work that's still going on in the context of COVID nineteen and and the impact of COVID nineteen on people with uh, with sight loss um, in uh, in the Canadian setting. Um, so there's a there's a couple of really large pieces of work there and and the way that the way that the research program tends to um, tends to run the way that I kind of drive that program forward is it's very it's, it's very sort of trainee heavy. We get a lot of students who come and who do work for us um, and with us um, via our academic collaborators. And, and so it's, it's all about capacity building and building a um, building an interest and an evolution toward the, the doing of, of kind of vision sciences research very broadly defined in ways that, that we haven't really done before in, in this country and, and even around the world. But it's also an issue of, of how to do inclusive research, right? So, so research as this engine, this, this enterprise, um, I'm a Star Trek fan, so I had to slip the word in there, um, has, has, been, has been something that, that over the past 50, 60, 70 years, there's, there's a way that research has been done. There's a way that research has been industrialized. There's a way that in North America and Western Europe, research is, is quote unquote practiced, right? And, and, um, and a legitimate question that's worth asking is, is that, is that in itself a way that's accessible? Um, and we talked a lot the last time about, uh, about sort of my place and space and experience being um, the first person in the world who was congenitally blind to go and do genetics for his uh, undergraduate degree, master's and PhD. Um, and and there's, there's a second piece to that, which is, um, you know, if, if, if research is to be inclusive to people with um, disabilities, then we have to collect data in accessible ways. We have to um, think about how we do the analysis in accessible and inclusive ways. We have to think about how we tell our stories in accessible and inclusive ways. And it's, it's not just about um, making sure that people with disabilities are participating in the research, that's that's one part of it. It's also making sure that people um, with disabilities are part of the research and, and are actually involved in data collection and data interpretation and in data analysis and in knowledge translation. So so um, so there's there's a the hidden curriculum of, of CNIB research has been for the past little while to build capacity in those areas, and and then the the kind of the other side of it is is the conversation around accessibility in STEM. Right, um, and that is and, and has always been sort of part and uh, and parcel of um, of the the interest and the capacity that I have. I, I think when we talk about inclusion and diversity and equity and accessibility in STEM, one of the things that we don't often realize is this is a legitimate academic discipline. It's a legitimate way um, that that people can ask questions. It's a legitimate thing to do research into. It's a legitimate thing to professionalize as a career path. Um, and, and lots of people um, 
over the years have, have sort of, you know, angled their, their, their career paths in this general direction without necessarily calling themselves, um, you know, professionals in the context of inclusion in STEM. And, and maybe it's, it's high time we actually start doing that. So, so um, there's, there's always work that, that's ongoing around accessibility in, in STEM education. Um, and, uh, and there's always work that I'm very pleased to be a part of and, and pleased to, to sort of drive forward in that space. Um, and, and one of the things that I will say is, is that, um, you know, the, the conversation around accessibility in STEM isn't merely around let's provide captioned videos or described videos or, or braille text. I think the conversation really has to be, how do you teach to um, a different learning frame of reference? Um, and then when you, when you teach that different learning frame of reference, how do you, how do you ensure in policy and in practice that, um, that, that STEM research remains an inclusive thing beyond the classroom and beyond kind of the, the controlled environment of an undergraduate setting. So, so those are the kinds of things that, that, um, that I'm, uh, I'm engaged in and, and spending my time on. Uh, that, that's, it's exciting and interesting and, and necessary, right? Like I'd say that just from my own experience and from others I know who are visually impaired, we're very or historically or traditionally been very siloed in our approaches of how to do everything when it comes to education. Uh, you know, there's sometimes, you know, there'd be some resources, but, uh, you know, for example, this is a, a small example, but when I was doing my master's and PhD, um, you know, inevitably I had to you know, read a ton of research papers and it wasn't always the easiest thing to do. And, you know, there wasn't really any sort of framework for somebody with a visual impairment to up to speed on all this stuff like everybody else. Um, I ended up hiring somebody um, uh, over, she was actually Dutch, over, <laughs> over, over in Europe to, uh, I would send her these uh, research papers that I needed to, to read and, and uh, be familiar with. And I'd send them to her. And then in the morning when I would get up because they're, you know, five, six hours ahead, um, she would have read them and put them in a Dropbox folder. So then on my way commuting into uh, the research lab, then I could just listen to them in audio on my phone. And it was, it was wonderful. But um, these are all, you know, those are all little things you have to kind of figure out on your own, I guess, uh, or, or traditionally. So it's nice to see that, um, you know, you and, and the team are spearheading a lot of, uh, a lot of initiatives in this space. Well, I, I, I will. Yeah. I will also say, um, you know, in in and among the 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 number of things that I'm engaged in, um, there is an organization I helped found uh, earlier this year called the International Network of uh, Visually Impaired Researchers and Their Allies, or INOVA, um, and it is truly international. A couple of us on the executive are, are Canadian, um, and uh, others are are in the United States, and and you know when when we. As, as this group has sort of formed and, and started to think about what it wants to do, you know, we think about, we think about again, the research enterprise, right? That's the term for it. Um, and, and we think about all of the different ways of engaging in research, whether it's at publications or conferences or, um, or seminars or classrooms or labs or collaborations or all of the things. Right. And, and as, as we think of all of these things, each one of these things is in itself um, a construct that needs to be unpacked. And, and we need to ask ourselves, what's all the bias? Right. How, how do we deal with bias in this setting? Where does the bias come from? Um, and then how do we actually figure out how to adjust for that bias? Right. And, and so, so when we talk about things like accessible pubs or accessible publications, we're not talking about accessible bars. 
um, although that's that's a you know fun conversation for some people, I'm sure. We're we're talking about how do you actually do accessible papers, right? And and um, and if we're going to talk about doing accessible papers, we're also going to talk about doing um, the research that goes into those papers in accessible ways. And, and so, so there's all levels of connectivity. Um, and, and, and I think often people will sort of be like, well, the system is the system and that's the end of it. Um, or people will say it's too big to unpack. There's too many moving parts. Where do we start and how do we actually do this? And, and, and so the conversation becomes, instead of trying to do something systemically, um, the conversation becomes, well, let's just deal with whatever issue somebody has raised today. And, and so, you know, if, if, if you are getting papers in audio, that's a viable, that, that's a viable solution. And by the way, all publishers should actually do that. There, there should be audio versions of papers, right? I've, I've actually worked with um, a collaborator recently at the University of Toronto to take something that, that, that they've published in the context of, um, of allyship in, in healthcare and allyship in health equity. And, and I've said to them, well, how do we make this a fully accessible product. It's a publication. How do we make it a fully accessible piece? And we've talked about things like actually converting papers into podcasts. Um, but then, but then, you know, I've, I've, I've read papers where people will say, and this, by the way, is a true story. Um, you know, there's, there's been a publication, at least one that I've seen where, where somebody wrote in the manuscript, um, this thing that we have evaluated is not appropriate or applicable to people who are blind or partially sighted. And then you actually go look in the fine print in the method section. Um, and for those of you who haven't spent too much time with scientific papers, sometimes the method section actually really is fine print. Um, and, and, uh, and you read the fine print and, and it actually says that the, the evaluation tool that was used was not accessible and therefore people with visual impairments were excluded from the evaluation process. Therefore, the thing that's being evaluated in the first place is not applicable to people with vision loss because people with vision loss couldn't do a survey. When, when I read something like that, um, to my perspective, that, that's, that's nonsensical, right? Because what that says to me is there's a failure of imagination on the part of a scientist who ordinarily wouldn't be accused of failures of imagination um, that says, I don't know how to do this, therefore it cannot be done, therefore I will not do it, right? And, and I, I think when we talk about inclusion in research, we talk about how to unpack some of these issues and some of these biases, we got to start right there with, with, well, what do we actually think is possible? What do we think is probable? Um, and and ir irrespective of whether we believe that, that people with disabilities uh, can do science or should be involved in science, at the end of the day, Right. We need to start from a premise of everybody needs access to the information. Exactly. No, no I think that's that's fantastic. Um, I want to put the spotlight back on you, the person um, for for uh, the next question or two here. Um, you know, in our previous conversation, you highlighted um, you ended up in high school at something like the age of 10 in university around the age of 15, something like yep, that. That's right. Um, the you know, that was fun. Is, you know, for, yeah. <laughs> so. But I'd like to maybe to dig into that a little bit. So were there particular challenges with, uh, you know, with being, you know, ahead of the, the curve, I guess, in that sense, academically, but also um, being visually impaired? Is there anything, you know, unique challenges that presented because you're visually impaired and finding yourself, um, you know, in, in, you know, this advanced stream of education? Um. Well, so, so I, I think there's, there's a dimension that, that we haven't alluded to that, that I'm just going to call out. Um, I was, I was 10, year olds in, 10, year, 10 years old in grade nine, um, three months after landing in Canada. 
right? And so, so I was also generation 1.0, first generation uh, Canadian immigrant, right? So, so there's, there's culture shock from age and then there's culture shock from culture because coming to North America from the West Indies, the Caribbean, the, they're not the same kinds of environments. Forget the snow versus the beach. Um, you know, culturally speaking, they're not the same kind of environment. So, so kind of moving into that space, it's a structurally different education system um, and, uh, and culturally different environment, you know, and, and the argument goes, you know, well, youth are youth and kids are kids. And, and that might be true, but, but kids are, are very much influenced by the, the um, environment around us that, that we're exposed to. So, so coming into a space that, that, was, that was educationally distinct, culturally distinct, age distinct and ability distinct was, um, you're right, it was, it was one of those things where it was rather stressful. Um, thinking about it and, and looking back on it, if I had a do-over, I would still do it again. Um, and, and I would do it again because even though I know what I know now, I also realize that I know what I know now by having gone through that experience in the first place. And, and so you can't necessarily just take that away. I've, I've had people say to me, well, you should have just been in, in grade four with your age mates. And, and here's, here's a dirty little secret about the, um, about the education system in, in Toronto at that point in time. If you came without French instruction and you were the right age, they'd actually hold you back a year so you would, you would get French instruction. And so I was 10 due to go into grade five or grade six, and they would have put me, well, grade five, I think, and they would have put me in grade four because I didn't have French, right? So, so, um, so they, they would have wanted me to be five years behind where I ended up being, right? And, and you know what, to me at that point in time, I was much more interested in learning things that wouldn't bore me to tears. Because if I'd stayed in Barbados, if, if my family had actually stayed on the island, going into grade nine, I would have been exposed to, um, introductory general chemistry and, uh, and, you know, basic calculus, right? I would have started to do the, the limit of f of x as, as x goes to h, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so coming here, having to learn how to do y equals x and how to graph it um, was, you know, honestly intellectually boring. Um, and, and so, and I, I don't say that to boast, I say that because the worst possible thing you could be is a 10 year old in any kind of location when you're bored out of your mind. Right. And, um, and in, in the first term in grade nine, I was, I was legitimately either bored out of my mind or struggling to understand um, the, the space that I was in. Right. And, and that's, that's a difficult combination to have to navigate both, both the I'm bored and I have, I have no intellectual purchase here. And the, I don't really understand everyone's jokes and I don't really understand everyone's cultural context. And I don't really understand why the education system is built the way it is, right? Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a knowledge junkie. And, uh, and as, as, I, um, as I kind of lived within that system, I realized that, that you know, the, the best thing that, that I could do was eat books for a living, which is what I spent years doing. Um, and the best thing that I could do was, was figure out how to, um, how to kind of navigate this new system um, and how to make it work. And, and the funny thing is in, in grade nine, I, was, I, was, I would say I was lost. I was adrift. I didn't really know people in, in my high school. Um, and I didn't care to know anybody in my high school at that point in time either. Um, and, and in grade 10, after I joined the, the library club, and that sounds totally nerdy, and it is. 
Um, but after I joined the library club in my high school, things got a little bit better because I, I ended up having an anchor that I could turn to when in grade nine, I didn't necessarily have that anchor. So, so all of that to say, was it easy? No. Was it straightforward? No. Is it something that I would do differently if I had to do it over again? Also, no. Um, and I, I think, I think that's, that's a really important point um, because lots of people have said, well, you know, your parents should have just put you in grade four, the implication is put you in grade four where you belong kind of thing, right? Or should have put you with your age mates because that's the way we do it in Canada, right? Um, and and in, in, in the British school system, again, very structurally different, it's not about age mates, it's about standardized testing and it's about, um, it's about kind of being able to be streamlined based on your scores on, on an exam. And, and so, so how much you know, when you know how much you know actually does matter. Right. Um, and uh, not to say it's easy to jump ahead in, in the British school system because it, it isn't necessarily. But but just to say that, that because the systems are built so differently, they, they start and end in the same place. But but they 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 take different paths to get there. They, they take different um, working premises or or um, or working assumptions in order to get from point A to point B um, and, and coming here knowing what I was going to do if I'd stayed in Barbados, it was, it was a little bit distressing to kind of be like, well, this is, this is simplistic. You know, I'm graphing Y equals X. Right. Um, and, and that's, that, that's not, that's not fun. Um, and so it, it actually took a while for, for high school to be fun. Um, and it took a while to sort of be intellectually challenged in high school. And, and that for me, more than the culture shock was, I think, the hardest part. I was, I was looking forward to drinking from a fire hose only to find that the fire hose would sputter on and off um, in various classes. In some places, it was great. In other places, it was sort of like, what are we actually doing? Yeah, no, fair. Now, so maybe you can just comment on, so during those high school university days, um, and nowadays too, what types of uh, visual aids if any, did you use, um, and you know, how did you, you know, drink from that higher fire hose, so to speak, and or, or eat those books, uh, as you mentioned, just to you know, not in the pursuit of knowledge acquisition back then, and, and then even now, like, are there any, um, whether they're adaptive aids or just tips and tricks, etc., that um, that you employ in uh, your work life and in day to day life now? I went to school in a time and during a generation where the best that somebody could do was hand you a magnifying glass and give you, um, give you a 150% blown up version of something um, and said, here, use this, right? And, and so photocopiers were everybody's best friends back in those days. I'm, I'm dating myself, by the way. And, and for the record, I went to high school in 1989 to 1994. Um, and you know, based on that, everyone can figure out my age, right? Um, and and so so, in in the in those days, there weren't screen reader technologies like Jaws or screen magnifier technologies like Zoom Text. Um, you know, my high school loved the old Mac SEs and and um, or and SE twos and Mac Classics. I don't know if you remember the one, Sean. They they have like. Um, they were little boxes and the little boxes had like an eight inch screen um, and it was all grayscale and it was absolutely horrible and I couldn't read a single blessed thing. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, that was the reason I hated Macs for 20 years. Um, I hated Macs for 20 years because I couldn't stand using those machines because the screens were so small and everything was grayscale and nothing was readable. 
and and they weren't accessible by any stretch of the imagination because in, in those days there weren't accessibility features built into those devices the way that they are now and and so so you know now you've got you've got computer aided technology you've got things like closed circuit televisions that people could use you've got all sorts of fancy things right in those days there were not fancy things there were photocopiers and magnifying glasses um, and um, and and because I do have functional vision I have I have some functional vision um, you know. I could get things in audio, um, but it, it was also just as effective in some ways to, to use a magnifying glass or use a telescope inside the classroom um, or, you know, get things in large print. And so I, I used to have loads and loads and loads of large print notes. Um, and what people would do is, is they just take whatever notes they'd given. And in those days, a number of them were handwritten. Um, and they would blow them up on a photocopier, right? Um, and, and so, so the, the legitimate accommodation was write big from a hatio, um, which was really funny because I never used to write big because I'm, I, I, wear, um, I wear magnifying glasses for all intents and purposes. And so when, when I write something, it looks big to me, but it isn't big to anybody else. Um, and so, so people used to say to me, your handwriting is small and cramped. How can you actually see this? And, and I would shrug at them and say, I don't know what you're talking about. My handwriting is big. I don't get it. <laughs> right? Fair, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, so as, as I moved through high school and, and then undergrad and, and into grad school, yeah, technology started to evolve, but, but the old fashioned make it big um, and, and kind of use the, the, the magnifier, the telescope approach kind of stuck. And I, I actually still have a family of telescopes today, right? Um, I have three of them, all of which work in slightly different ways and do slightly different things. Um, and I still use them, right? I, I still use them, well, pre-pandemic when I was actually in in-person lectures, I would use them all the time. Um, you know, now during the pandemic, when I'm doing something on Zoom, I don't have to use anything like that because I've got the native accessibility features of, of, my, of my laptops that I can rely on, right? Um, but those native accessibility features of, of laptops didn't start to come into being really until the uh, early to mid 2000s and, and 2010s, right? Um, and so, so, you know, Zoom text was a thing way back in 2000, but, um, but the thing that I was using it for didn't, didn't work with Zoom text, right? Um, and, and then that became the other problem because as I, as I got into my master's and my PhD, the kinds of programs I was using on a computer, the kinds of things I was doing, they didn't work with a program that was fundamentally built to help somebody read a newspaper, right? And so I couldn't use data analysis tools with, um, with the, the software that, that I had because it would crash. And so, um, so I actually quit using ZoomText because I could just never get ZoomText, which is a screen magnifying program, to talk to the things that I was using. Um, and so, so I, I kind of you know, fell back on what I had to do when I was in grade 11 computer science, which was squint at the computer screen and stick my nose right up against it, right? Um, because in, in those days, and, and even today, to some degree, there was no choice. And, and so the funny thing is, you know, I'm, I'm going to just pull this away from me for a moment and talk systemically about something. We, we champion all the time the existence of all of these tools and technologies that aid people with visual impairments in doing all sorts of things. And I will tell you right now that, that all of those tools and technologies are fantastic. Um, but 
The problem is that, that if you're in an environment where you need something that is kind of outside the boundaries of what those tools and technologies are capable of doing, what they're rated to do, then you have to improvise. And I was improvising left, right, and center from the time I was, I was in my PhD 20 years ago, right? Um, and, and that improvisation takes effort and takes time. And, and I, I do it because I, I have to do it. I do it because at this point, it's actually easier for me to do that than it is for me to rely on a tool that I just don't trust is going to actually work for, for what I want to do. Um, and and I, I think that's, that's, that's something that's worth flagging. I'll, I'll tell you two stories. When I was doing my PhD, um, I started my PhD and my PhD was in the mouse model of acute leukemia. Um, and I started my PhD at a time when computer-aided microscopy was in its infancy, right? And, and computer-aided microscopy today, um, you've got microscopes that are fully controlled by software on a uh, laptop or desktop. And, and the camera is controlled, the contrast is controlled, the brightness is controlled. You can do all sorts of things without ever having, ever having to touch the microscope to do anything other than put the slide on the stage. Um, but in 2001, January, when I started my PhD, those kinds of devices didn't exist as yet. And the only thing you could actually do with computer control on a microscope was take a photo, but it was a manually staged photo. Um, and so, so we went through this process, me and my PhD supervisor, um, and, uh, and actually Fisher Scientific and, uh, as a scientific supply company, we went through this process of kit bashing a microscope together that would actually allow me to do real-time video capture of what was on the stage so that I didn't have to look down the eyepiece because looking down the eyepiece isn't something that actually works for me physiologically or neurologically. Um, and and so, so we, we figured out how to do that at a time when that technology, it seems trivial today, but that technology just wasn't built into microscopes, right? Um, another example is it, animal dissections. In order to do animal dissections, we actually deconstructed a closed circuit television. We found a, a CCTV, which, which for those who don't know, is basically a camera mounted over a platform um, that's attached to a screen. And, and if you put something on that platform, the camera will, will magnify it for you. So typically people will use the CCTV to read text um, and they'll put text on, on the platform and the camera will, will magnify the text for you and, and you can read that. And, and we, we reverse engineered this. We found a camera that was detachable. We found a platform that was, that was mobile. We found the whole thing uh, could be set up to connect to a laptop. And so, so we ended up taking the camera taking the platform, hooking it up to my laptop and, and using a closed circuit television that was deconstructed and reimagined as a mouse dissection platform. Those are the kinds of technological solutions that we had to come up with um, because when people think about technology solutions, they're not thinking about the, the person who's blind or visually impaired in a biological sciences lab or in a chemical sciences lab or in a physical sciences lab. They're thinking about somebody who's blind or visually impaired reading a newspaper. That's fair. I, you know, when you're commenting... From your experience with the microscope, I, I went through uh, something, something very similar. So I started grad school in 2005. Um, and uh, we're both back dating then, What's well, Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Um, the, uh, yeah, so back then, you know, I worked in a, it was an ocular pathology lab. So there was a lot of looking at slides, um, you know, uh, specimens and, uh, you know, trying to look in the microscope, forget it. Like it just wasn't, you know, it just was, it wasn't feasible for me physiologically either. Um, and, uh, you know, we were able to have a system, um, 
this is four years after you, I guess, but I have a system with, that uh, linked the, one of the cameras mounted on the microscope to a screen uh, that was um, somewhat helpful. But yeah, the idea of, of uh, an accessible microscope was still, you know, it was it still wasn't really uh, not where it is today for, for sure. Um, I fortunately had um, an advisor, a supervisor who uh, was very understanding. He was um, double boarded in ophthalmology and pathology and uh, just, you know, understood my condition inside and out. And, uh, you know, we just were able to focus on, on my strengths in the lab, I guess, um, which happened to be uh, writing and some of the background research more so than, you know, analyzing slides. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely struggled with that with, uh, you know, cell culture, with, with uh, animal studies, with uh, a, quite, a, quite a number of things as well. So I can certainly um, relate to some of those. Uh, well, those so, so cell culture was a challenge for me. I could, I could do it, but I would always take my time to do it right, right? Because I knew given my dexterity and, and my vision, it would be easier to make a mistake. So, so I, I took the time to do it. And I, didn't, I didn't rush it necessarily. Um, animal surgery was a problem. I could never, I could never do dissections. I just didn't have, I didn't have the hand-eye coordination for it. Um, and radiation was something I actively avoided after my master's. I handled it in my master's and, and I was not comfortable doing that. Um, it was, it was, I think a bit of a challenge. Um, I could, I could tell, but won't tell embarrassing stories of, of Geiger counters and, and radioactive lab coats. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, I think that, that for me, the conversation I ended up having with my PhD supervisor um, was, here are all the things I know I can do safely. Here are all the things that are my value add. And here are all the things that we probably, for liability reasons, should not get me to do. And, and my, my primary accommodation during my PhD was actually... Um, a technical assistant because, and my primary accommodation during my master's and my postdocs as well. Um, it was, it, it was a technical assistant because I, um, I did have hand-eye coordination issues and I still do have hand-eye coordination issues. And, and so fine manipulation becomes, becomes a challenge. And, and so, you know, it would take me three hours to load an agarose gel to, to run DNA samples off of a PCR machine. Could I set up a PCR? Absolutely, no problem. I can, I can set up a PCR and I can run a PCR very effectively, right? But, but the thing is, it would take me three hours to actually load the damn gel. Um, and, and by the time you're done loading the gel, everything's diffused out of the wells. And so, so the effort that I've put into loading the gel is actually effectively useless. Um, does it mean that I can't do science if I can't load a gel? Well, I can, but I shouldn't, right? So, so does it mean yeah, that I can't yeah. do science because my gels <clears throat> don't work? No, because the gel is a tool to visualize product, right? And, and at the end of the day, the gel is a tool to visualize product. And, um, and what matters is making sure you've got the product and making sure you know how to analyze the data. And so running the gel is a necessary step in that, but it's not a step that I physically had to do. That was the argument that we made and, and, um, and made successfully. And I, I know that, that the, 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 conversation around technical assistance in science labs is fraught with, with interesting challenge. Um, but for me, uh, it, it comes down to what is it that you're actually supposed to know how to do, right? And, and at the end of the day, I actually know all of the, all of the wet bench work a lot more rigorously than, than many of my cited colleagues did. And I knew it because I had to, I had to guide somebody through the doing of something that I couldn't necessarily see. 
Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, uh, I mean, when you step outside of the research lab into life in general, um, you know, uh, most people don't have to do, you know, every aspect of a job, you know, in many work environments, you're working in a team and, you know, uh, as an example, I, I work with a, a team right now in, in uh, one of my, um, one of my jobs. Um, and uh, that includes software hardware engineers. I mean, I'm, you know, I can understand some of the things, but I'm not going to be the one, you know, building out these PCBs and, and doing all these, uh, the hardware stuff, right? So it, it, the general expectation in a biological sciences graduate program is like, you're going to do everything A to Z, but in the real world, once you leave that environment, you rarely are the one doing A to Z. You're doing, you know, a subset of that. Uh, and as part of and right, right there, that's exactly it, right? So, so team science by its nature right, is, is in theory a very inclusive construct. And, and I say in theory because that, that doesn't account for the people involved and, and people confuse everything. Um, but, but the team science as a construct is very inclusive, but that's not what we're taught in undergrad or graduate education. Heck, it's not even what we're taught in high school, right? The, the way we're taught science, Sean, um, my, my fundamental perspective is um, we're taught science is a very linear, very logical progression from A to B to C to D all the way out to Z. Um, the problem with that is anybody who's actually done science knows that that might be how we write the damn paper, but that's not actually how that paper was conceived of. That's not how we do science. Science, as my master's supervisor once said, 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration, right? We write about the 10% inspiration. Right. Um, or put it another way, you know, the 10% inspiration is sexy. The 90% perspiration is, is the part that makes it sound like we actually know what we're doing in science. Right. But if we knew what we were doing in science, it wouldn't be science. Right. We, we falsify hypotheses all the time. We test things. We figure out that something doesn't work. And most of the things that we figure out don't work are not supposed to work. That's how we learn stuff. Right. Um, but you never write a paper that way you write a paper assuming, and, and you teach science, particularly in, in elementary and high school, you, you teach science by stripping the story out of it, by, by saying, well, this person did this and proved this, and then this person did this other thing and proved the second thing, and the second thing was added to the first thing. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way, right? Um, and, and don't get me started on whether we're still teaching things from the 1950s that we probably shouldn't be teaching anymore because the Uri Miller <laughs> experiment was totally discredited about 20 years after it was done. But you know, that, that's, that's, how we, that, that's how we still teach origin of life theories in, in grade 12 biology kind of thing, right? Um, and and, and so, so there's, there's all sorts of fundamental challenges, I think, with, with how we teach science and, and in many ways also how we do science that play into whether science is today um, an accessible and inclusive kind of space. Fair, fair. I and mean, then we've kind of come full circle on, on the conversation there. The, oh, the other thing I would actually say about that, Sean, sorry, um, is that, you know what, we talked about technology advancement, right? And we talked about the things that, that I did when I was in high school and undergrad to, to be accommodated and to accommodate myself. And the fun thing is you'd think that with all the technology, technological advancement of the past two and a half decades, and, and if I were to pick an inflection point, I'm going to pick 2007 with, with the launch of the iPhone, right? Um, and, and I would say to you that naively you would think that what that means is that the, the number of people with vision impairment um, who would be going into the sciences should be that much more increased, right? You would think so. 
The problem is the number doesn't back that up, right? Um, and and so so the the proportion of people with disabilities going into post secondary has skyrocketed, but the absolute number of people with visual impairments who are making it into post secondary and who are doing STEM has not skyrocketed, right? It's it's not even necessarily gone up; it's stayed level, right? So so technology has improved. And, and we talk about accessibility in terms of technology, but, but if technology has improved, why hasn't the number gone up? And the answer to that question has to do more with attitude than it has to do with the actual devices. So the attitude of the applicants or the attitude of the attitude of the, system? Uh, the, the attitude of the educators, the attitudes of the employers, the attitudes of the people who define the system, right? I still hear today after a PhD and two postdocs and, and a very successful scientific career, if I do say so myself, that blind people can't do science. Hmm. We should, I should have someone on the podcast and the two of us can, can tear into them. Someone who says that, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Actually, I, I once had a colleague um, and, uh, and I was chatting with them about, about scholarships for students in STEM. And I said, wouldn't this be a great thing to fundraise for? And I don't think this person actually looked me up, um, aside from knowing that, that I was CNIB's brand spanking new director of research. And, um, and they said to me, well, why would you do that? Blind people can't do science. And, and I, I kind of looked at this individual and I said, did you look me up? <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. Because <laughs> you can't you can't legitimately say something like that to my face without expecting me to to deconstruct it and take it apart. Of course, of course, yeah. The um, so I was hoping we could just wrap up with uh, with some any advice that you might have. So you've obviously you know um, you know blazed your own trail uh, over the years, and as someone who's visually impaired, um, working through. Uh, career in, in biomedical sciences and, and still doing that. And now you're, you're certainly trying to make that trailblazing easier for, for others to do the same. Um, any advice for some people who might be listening to this, who uh, either they themselves or they have a family member or friend who uh, are looking at your story, they're, um, you know, inspired by your story and they say, Hey, I like, I would like to be that vision impaired person working in STEM um, whether it's around tactics or attitude or anything in between that you would want to give to those people? Step one, you're not alone. The, the number of people who go into this space thinking that they're the first and, and that they have, to, they have to build from the ground up is, is, is actually very distressing. Um, and, and not to say that, that there's lots of people who go into this space, but to say that everybody who goes in, because of the way the system is built, they believe that they're alone. They believe that they're the first and, and that, Nobody has come before them. And, and the, the thing is that, that if you start with that premise, what, what that means is you start from ground zero, but, but we're not at the space where we need to start from ground zero anymore. We can start from ground 10 or ground 50 or whatever, right? There are others who, who are in this space who have done what you want to do. Um, and that's not to say you shouldn't do the thing that you want to do, but that is to say you are not alone, right? Um, and, and that is a very powerful message. You are not alone. Um, because it means that, that somebody else may have a solution to, to the, the challenges that you're encountering. And if somebody else doesn't have a solution, there's, there's, there's a group of people out there that honestly takes a little bit of effort to find. Um, and, and taking the effort to find is not necessarily a great thing because that, that's hard work. 
Um, but there's a group of people out there who can troubleshoot with you and who can workshop with you and, and who can ideate with you and, and who can crowdsource with you. So, so message one, you're not alone. Message two, this is not easy. Um, and I, I have to say that, that as I've gotten uh, on in my career, it hasn't necessarily become easier, right? But once, once we accept the premise that this is not easy, this is absolutely worthwhile. Um, there, there has been not one single day in the past 27 years where I have regretted my choice to be a scientist. Um, and, and that goes all the way back to when I started my undergrad, right? There's not one single day where I've regretted that choice because I've had the chance to learn all sorts of cool stuff. And I've had the chance to do all sorts of cool stuff. And I've had the chance to um, make a difference in, in very meaningful and, and very impactful ways for, for the field that I've been in for, for post-secondary education at large, for all of the students that I've had, uh, I've had a chance to make a difference. And that has been absolutely meaningful and rewarding to me. And, and so I wouldn't trade my career for anything, no matter how hard it's been. Um, and, but I, I think it's really important to recognize that it's been hard. It's also been important to recognize that as I look back on that career, um, I can count on one hand the number of times in two decades plus where I actually had a choice that wasn't do this or quit, right? Um, and and so so I I think about um, I, I think about that a lot because you know people will say to me there's there's always a choice you have a choice to do everything, right? Um, but but the pushback that I have on that is. Um, if your choice is to, is to struggle to do this thing that you love or to quit and not do it at all, how is that actually a choice, right? Um, because in an ideal world, I wouldn't have to struggle to do the thing I love. I'd just be able to do the thing I love and that'd be great. But, but we, don't, we don't live in that ideal world. Um, and, and so, so I, I think it's important from an attitudinal perspective, one, to know that you're not alone. Two, to recognize this isn't easy, uh, but it is rewarding. And, and honestly, I, I think from a, from a, from a tactical perspective, the, the best thing that, that I might be able to say is because there's, there's like a number of other podcasts behind that question. Um, the best thing I'd be able to say is learn from others who, who've attempted to try something and, and learn what's worked, learn what's not worked and find the approach that is your approach. Right. Because because my way won't necessarily be your way. Um, your way will be your way, but you can still learn from from what worked for me and what didn't work for me. And yeah, no, I think that's very, uh, no, that's, that's it's great advice. And it, it uh, I, I feel like I could pick up on that and, and run with it. But I <laughs> in the sake of sake of time today, I won't I won't do that. But uh, I will take the opportunity just to uh, just to thank you for coming back on the podcast uh, um, as we were talking before we started recording your first uh, episode that uh, you did with us, uh, turned to be wildly popular, um, well, uh, well shared in social media as well. Um, so um, certainly honored and happy to have you back on again. Um, and it's happy been to a, be a back and happy to come <laughs> back anytime you want. Excellent. All right, Dr. Sakai, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Sean. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. 
Thanks for listening.